On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news in the ASC industry. We'll discuss the recent uptick in COVID cases and remind listeners of the return to work guidelines. Discuss recent survey issues, including the new Medicare Ombudsman link and the requirements for BLS, ACLS, and PALS certifications. In our focus segment, we discuss outsourced billing, coding, and collections. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 196 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for August 15th, 2023. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We'd like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape, and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. He has over 30 years of experience and has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. We just finished our uh, first ever business office managers boot camp. I think it was a great success. Uh, relatively small group this time. I think we've learned our lesson, haven't we, Sue? That uh, mm-hmm. we uh, we probably shouldn't be doing boot camps during the summertime. Yes. I think uh, <laughs> vacation time. I think everybody wants to be on vacation. I don't mm-hmm. blame them, and I think that's where we would prefer to be, which we will be in in about a week. A weeks. So. Yep. Um, we are going to be doing it again in the spring, a date to be announced, but uh, Christine Benton and I, my partner in that business office manager's boot camp, have agreed that it uh, it's, a, it's a great concept. We had a lot of mm-hmm. great feedback from the attendees there, a lot of great information from them. and As you said, it was a small cohort, but they were they were present for the whole time, the whole time the which part, yeah. a lot of times people can't. Do that, like the DON one. I'm sure they just get pulled out. Yeah, but um, and had a lot of good questions. Yep. So we're very excited about it. We will have a on-demand version of it available probably in about two to three weeks. If you feel like you can't wait until the spring, uh, or if you just know that you'll never be able to attend a uh, a live one. So, uh, uh, but that uh, our boot camps are are certainly the industry's leading 
tra- leadership training, and uh, we're very uh, pleased to fill out our uh, our retinue of uh, of boot camps with now mm-hmm. the uh, third boot camp. And we did announce our October 2023 Director of Nursing Boot Camp uh, cohort. Uh, that will be October 31st to November 3rd, 2023. It's going to be presented virtually, like all of them, and uh, it includes access to the weekly drop-in sessions as well as the access to uh, a lot of great resources. Uh, and you get access immediately to the drop-in sessions. Well, you know, they, they're on a weekly, mm-hmm. usually about a weekly basis. But as soon as you sign up, we'll sign you up for that. Um, so for more information about the October cohort, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. And then we also announced just uh, yesterday, actually, uh, the January 2024 Administrators Boot Camp. That's going to be January 23rd to the 26th, 2024. And it's going to be presented virtually also. And Sue, that will be our fourth year doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. So we had started mm-hmm. in 2021. So 2021, 22, 23, 24, it'll be the fourth year uh, of doing it. will be the ninth boot camp for the wow. administrators boot camp. Mm-hmm. So uh, very exciting that it's still continuing. And, uh, and of course, there are uh, on-demand versions of the director of nursing boot camp and the administrators boot camp. Mm-hmm. Again, all of those boot camps are available on the uh, ASCPodcast.com website. And we'll have some links in the, uh, the show notes also. Yep, and then we're doing something a little bit different, right? We're working on a number of one in two-day conferences. Yeah, we're very excited about this. And a lot of this comes from our feedback from our uh, boot camps Mm -hmm. as well as our uh, patron members who, you know, we get to to meet with virtually every week. Mm, That's a pun, isn't it? Virtually every week. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, well, I... My sense of humor is lost on a lot of people, I'm afraid. Uh, but anyway, uh, so we're planning in November doing um, a series of three different boot camp, a series of three different conferences. We, Sue, you and I have to update our 2021 conference on the conditions for coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll do that. Again, we don't have the dates exactly here. Uh, set, but uh, we'll announce them very soon. So keep an eye out for the, first of all, the revised conditions for coverage conference with all the updated conditions for coverage. Uh, We're going to do the introduction of finance and accounting and ASCs. First of its kind, nobody has ever done this before. That came out of the business office managers Mm -hmm. boot camp because people felt that there are some people who would need a really very basic uh, course. And a part of the reason is that, and I'm the one that wrote uh, a book entitled uh, Financial Management Made Easy. Uh, for ASCs. And unfortunately, the book is out of print and I just haven't had the time to be able to write a new one. Not that I'm gonna not going to try, but we figured maybe doing a uh, you know one-day conference mm-hmm. would be a good way to, to get that up to date, really preparing people mm-hmm. to take the CASC exam, uh, as well as being able to uh, uh, you know get the very basic information, mm-hmm. especially for nurses who have no background at all in accounting. Because yeah, people come to all of these jobs, the administrator, the DON, the business office manager with such different backgrounds. You know, some people may have a bit of finance. Some people know a lot about it. But some people really just don't have the basics, and and you really can't move forward without, you know, getting that foundation. Yeah, and then uh, we're going to try our medical director conference again. Uh, Again, we did that in 2021. Uh, it's going to be on a Saturday. Um, a lot of details still. We're going to be working with some uh, anesthesiologists, we hope, to uh, to pull that together. Last one, well, you know, probably had about 12 or 13 people, which for medical directors is actually pretty mm-hmm. good. Uh, but we hope to, uh, to make it a lot bigger this time. So keep an eye out for those November conferences, the conditions for coverage, medical director, and an introduction to finance and accounting. And, and we always have that information as you said, on the website. So, right. you know, if you're ever looking for something, you can always check and 
if the one you're looking for isn't coming up right away, you can you can get the recorded version. That's right. And in December, uh, Christina Benton with Coding Compliance Management and I have decided to do a one-day finance and accounting conference to include an update on or the information about the final 2024 payment roll as well as some finance updates. Uh, the agenda is still to be determined and the dates to be determined. So keep an eye out for that. So uh, at least four different conferences coming up before the end of the year mm-hmm. for you to keep an eye on. And then in January, February, we're going to be doing uh, the Credentialing and Peer Review Conference. It will be a two-day conference, which is an update to our 2020 conference. Sue, we got a lot of work ahead of us, don't Mm -hmm. we? (laughs) Also, we did launch the new ASC Central website at asc-central.com. It's still partially under construction, but there's a lot of great uh, resources there. That's where you uh, can sign up for either the patron program or our premium access program, which is an enhanced version of it that includes, by the way, the premium access program gives you unlimited access to all of our conferences. So it's a, it's a great deal for the price. And the ASC Central website will also have information about our virtual and other on-demand conferences. And we'll provide uh, links in the show notes for both of those websites. So let's move on to our recent news. Sue, there's been an uptick in COVID again. I guess this mm-hmm. is going to be our life, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> up and down. Yeah, and and it came to us because one of our clients in particular had 10 staff out all at once mm-hmm. for, with COVID. And they reached out to us for uh, some guidance as to what to do because even though we've been living with this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's always this question as to as what is the current status. So let's yeah. start with some recent statistics. So for the week ending July 29th, COVID-19 hospital admissions were at 9,056. That's an increase of about 12% from the previous week. There were about 9,000 COVID hospitalizations during the last week of July, which was a 28% increase from a month earlier, according to the CDC. Now, you know, I've been hearing these statistics and it sounds so alarming, but really it's still much lower than um, what we had in the past. There were 44,000 weekly hospital admissions in early January and almost 45,000 in late July of 2022, and 150,000 admissions during the Omicron surge of January 2022. So even though the percentages sound a little bit scary, it's re- we're at a whole different place right now. Right. So an Omicron subvariant known as ERIS, E-R-I-S, is currently the leading vi- version of the virus and makes up about 17% of COVID cases in the U.S. And that's, again, according to the CDC. Um, according to the World Health Organization, globally, nearly 1.5 million new COVID-19 cases and over 2,500 deaths were reported in the last 28 days. That would be from July 10th to August 6th. Just a reminder, though, the reported cases may not accurately represent infection rates because, you know, not many people are testing anymore right. or reporting. So then I kind of, you know, go down the rabbit hole. I looked for information on the wastewater testing because I've heard a lot about that, but I really wasn't sure how well that worked. So on the CDC website, they talked about um, the wastewater surveillance. It captures the presence of COVID shed by people with or without symptoms, which is a really good point because then mm-hmm. it doesn't depend how, how it's affected. People that aren't don't have symptoms are obviously not going to get tested. So right. this is probably and much more It's accurate. not part of the reporting. Yeah. yeah. By measuring those levels in untreated wastewater over time, the uh, public health officials can determine if infections, infections are increasing or decreasing. Um, wastewater surveillance can be an early indicator that the number of people with COVID-19 in a community, whether it's increasing or decreasing. And unlike other types of COVID-19 surveillance, wastewater surveillance doesn't depend on whether people have access to health care, 
whether they're seeking health care when they're sick um, or, you know, the availability of testing. So wastewater surveillance can be implemented in many communities since nearly 80% of U.S. households are served by municipal wastewater collection systems. So that really may be the most accurate way of doing it moving forward, I think. Right. And I think, uh, you know, one of the most important statistics to understand, and certainly as we continue with our conversation Mm -hmm. here, is that while the number of people that have been tested positive with COVID is has been increasing. It's been going yeah. through uh, phases, yeah. but it's up right now. Thankfully, the number of deaths is way down. So mm-hmm. I think the mm-hmm. uh, the natural immunity as well as the widespread vaccination is, is keeping those numbers Making a low. Difference. But still, we have to consider how we treat employees that are mm-hmm. out sick uh, with COVID or, or yeah. Never-ending, never-ending. Yeah. So I do want to remind you of the CDC guidance, and we'll provide a a link to that guidance, which is, you know, been around for a while. Uh, So this, I can't remember the last time it was changed. I think it was in uh, mid-2022. But just to remind you of the, uh, the guidance from the CDC. As a reminder, healthcare providers with mild to moderate illness who are not moderately to severely immunocompromised could return to work after the following criteria have been met. Um, at least seven days have passed since symptoms first appeared if a negative viral test is obtained within 48 hours prior to returning to work, or 10 days if testing is not performed, or if they have a positive test at days 5 to 7. And at least 24 hours have passed since their last fever without the use of fever-reducing medications, and symptoms such as cough, shortness of breath, have begun to improve or have improved. So again, that's the guidance that you use for determining whether your employees can come back to work after uh, being diagnosed positive. Sue, it is still uh, ASC month. The month of August every year is ASC month. Just want to remind you that you might want to put up some posters uh, recognizing this as an important month. You know, might want to use this month to recognize your staff and the wonderful stuff they do. You certainly should be considering inviting local, state, and national representatives to your facility and take pictures with them. They always those representatives always like to be in the news, um, and uh, it's a good way to kind of get some free publicity for your surgery mm-hmm. center as well as to, to let the uh, the politicians know uh, the value of ambulatory surgery centers. Mm-hmm. That's still one of our ongoing challenges: is that we have such a great message, and yet you know the hospitals have a better way. Of communicating their message, yes. yeah. uh, and the doctors in a way do too. But uh, but we in the surgery center industry just don't get that contact, that ongoing mm-hmm. contact mm-hmm. with them. But you should know how to contact your representatives and just see if they're willing to come by, and and certainly use this month as a great opportunity if you're doing something new and mm-hmm. innovative out there because those always are you know new stations are always looking for uh, good uh, human uh, interest stories out there and you know they really don't have newspapers i think that much anymore but there <laughs> still is a uh, television news and and definitely think about uh, taking advantage of ASC month so a big issue that we have been dealing with uh, with our clients recently and i know this is a, a national issue is the anesthesia provider shortage. Among our clients, we've uh, we've had situations where groups have given notice to our surgery center saying that they have 90 days to find another provider. Yeah. And they're really struggling. You know, they're looking for national companies to help them out, which is sometimes difficult, other local or independent groups. Um, and, you know, these groups are terminating relationships with really very little notice, unfortunately, yeah. uh, particularly with those centers that don't have lucrative cases for anesthesia. Uh, you know, the, the anesthesiologists are looking, obviously, to make as much money as they can. And if mm-hmm. they're doing a lot of non-lucrative cases in your center, they might be looking for another place to go. 
And another trend that we're seeing is anesthesia uh, providers uh, demanding additional fees, such as uh, additional stipends, in order to work uh, at that center. In other words, uh, you would be paying them, and then they'd also be collecting fees from the patients uh, for the provision of those services. And in doing some research, Sue, there, there, you had mentioned it too, that a, a lot of the research that we have is not current. Mm-hmm. I think what's mm-hmm. happened is this problem has been, shall we say, percolating so. for a while, yeah. and now it's really come to a head. Mm-hmm. So there is a higher demand for anesthesia, but there's been no increase in the number of people that are being trained. And what we're finding also is that uh, people are getting older. You know, anesthesiologists are getting older and uh, the new anesthesiology groups, the new trainees are not coming up in such quantities to be able yeah. to uh, uh, meet the increased demand as well as the the number of people that are retiring. It's scary, kind of. You know, it's sort of like what happened with nurses. It seems like it's a whole trend in a lot of these. In healthcare. You know, in a lot of healthcare, and that's, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. Well, and another thing that I found in one of the articles is uh, they were talking about how anesthesiologists are not as efficient as they were before, uh, not because of the hard work they're doing, but because they're being spread among different areas. You know, like in a hospital, they might have to go to, you know, the main hospital and then maybe a, you know, hospital outpatient department associated with Mm -hmm. it. And if the the hospital owns a surgery center, they might be going out there and then maybe they have office-based practices. Uh, And certainly that's what we're seeing even with our own surgery centers that when they're bringing a group in, uh, often they are doing other, you know, centers at the same time. Mm-hmm. which makes them less efficient. So uh, a doctor that's working in a hospital or a surgery center full-time is going to be a lot more efficient than one that has to trans, you know, get, go between around. different mm-hmm. uh, locations. So I thought that was an interesting uh, comment there. So that brings us to what are, what are many surgery centers doing. There's a, this is often resulting in demands to move to an, a CRNA model, for example, uh, which isn't exactly, which isn't necessarily solving the problem. Uh, for example, in states where CRNAs cannot practice independently, the physician will have to supervise the CRNAs. That's if there is no an- anesthesiologist that's part of the agreement. And of course, this can be challenging. Many of the physicians don't want to be supervising mm-hmm. those CRNAs, don't want to take on the higher malpractice costs that are involved yeah. in it, or the additional risk uh that they have in supervising those mm-hmm. uh, those CRNAs. Well, I think it's hard because if they're not trained to be as an anesthesiologist, how do you supervise somebody to do something that you don't that you're not trained in? Right, and and it comes to a head usually when uh, we ask them to sign off on the the mm-hmm. the records. Like, yeah. you know, keep in mind that if. Uh, physician is supervising a CRNA, they have to sign off on the pre-anesthesia assessment, the intraoperative record, and the post-anesthesia assessment. Um, And that is not always caught, by the way. We as surveyors are keeping an eye out for that now, and it's certainly going to be an issue in lawsuits if if, uh, that documentation isn't there. And we're also seeing an increase in the use of RN-administered sedation. It's been called conscious sedation. That's not completely accurate, but that's how people refer to that sometimes. Um, where the RNs are involved in the anesthesia, which requires additional training and competencies. It also requires um, another nurse to be in the room who doesn't have that as her, as her duty. The surgery center takes on this cost because there is no separate reimbursement like you would have when a CRNA or an anesthesiologist pr- um, can bill independently. So um, I know, John, you had said you have to be very careful yeah, I, I think we're very concerned. You as a nurse, of course, all of the nurses on our team in ambulatory healthcare strategies, uh, even though you're all very capable nurses, there's just that that level of comfort in taking yeah. on sedation. You Even the training that you're provided 
um, still doesn't prepare you for you know, being able to handle the types of emergencies mm -hmm. that an anesthesiologist and, and a CRNA would be able to do. Uh, so we're seeing pushback from some of the nurses uh, on this. And, you know, and, and another concern that, that we have, and we've, we've experienced this with some of our centers and, and, and uh, tried to defend our nurses on this, mm -hmm. is that if, if the facility is, is calling upon their nurses to do it that occasionally when there isn't yeah. a provider available, maybe they're only doing it, you know, a couple times a year or even once a month for that matter. They just don't have that experience. They don't have that ongoing uh, experience to be able to uh, demonstrate that uh, or, or to be able to feel comfortable doing that mm -hmm. anesthesia. So I'd be very, very careful about yeah. uh, about the use of RN-administered sedation unless you really have very well-trained uh, nurses who are comfortable doing it. So that brings us to what can you do? Well, first of all, I think it's very important that you keep your anesthesiologist happy. You know, don't make unreasonable demands on anesthesia since they, they have so many options, other options out there at, at the present time. And if you're going to use CRNAs in a state where they cannot practice independently, make sure that the supervising physician is signing off on the pre-anesthesia, intra-op, and post-op assessment. Also, make sure that they have ACLS or PALS. Uh, because they'll, they'll need that in order to run a code. Make sure that your malpractice carrier is aware uh, if the uh, if anybody other than anesthesiologists are doing uh, are providing uh, sedation. And with uh, conscious sedation, make sure that RNs are properly trained, have competencies, and have no other op uh, no other responsibilities in the operating room while providing that sedation. And I've provided a couple links to some articles from Becker's. Um, on on this area. I, I really haven't talked about what uh, the Becker's articles had, but that might give you some other information uh, that could be useful for you. And we're going to keep an eye on this. We're going to keep talking about this uh, as we see developments occur. Uh, we have a couple of speeches coming up in a couple of our state conferences, mm -hmm. which I'm looking forward to hearing the experts talk about. So, Sue, I guess we are finding that childhood immunization rates are on the decline. Really, a, a disappointing development as we, you know, mm -hmm. want to make sure that patients coming in are, are are not going to, you know, cause any problems. And we saw some problems in New York City, for example, when there was that outbreak of measles a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so there was an article in the Hill on August sixth about the decline in childhood immunization rates. They said the rate of kindergartners who have received the MMR vaccine, which is measles, mumps, and rubella, of course, was 93% for the second year in a row, which is just slightly below the target rate of 95%. So it doesn't seem like a lot of a decline, but it is the lowest rate in almost a decade. This could be partly due to, to the pandemic's effect on maintaining regular medical appointments. You know, yeah, some people have kind of fallen behind in that. And, of course, the outbreak late last year in Ohio, which affected 85 young children, reminds us that these diseases are still out there and they spread quickly when, when they kind of reappear like that. Right. So I think the big takeaway from this is we might have to uh, really up our surveillance uh, as we keep an eye on, on mm -hmm. what uh, immunizations that patients ha or that children have when they're coming into our center. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot recently about AI and how it might affect healthcare. So I just wanted to mention a couple of ways that other technology is improving patient experiences. In the August Outpatient Surgery magazine, they talked about text messaging apps for pre- and post-surgery um, and how the automated messages that go out on a schedule, um, such as two days before... Um, having a reminder of the MPO instructions and arrival time, um, how helpful that can be. And afterwards, um, a reminder of post-op instructions such as, you know, post-op day one, it might say, keep your leg elevated. 
post-op day four, remember to take it easy, even if you're not in pain. And reminders of, you know, if you have a fever or any other signs of infection um, and who to call with, with any questions. And they did mention some of these apps can send the messages out in different languages, which would be very helpful. And, and almost determine the language of the, of the mm-hmm. patient when they call. I mean, that's yes. the neat thing about AI is it can adapt. The, the message can adapt to uh, responses from the, the mm-hmm. patients mm-hmm. That, that answer the phone. And they stress the importance of working with the surgeons to customize and time the messages appropriately so that they don't confuse the patients. So even though this can be can be a time saver, you do have to put time in at the beginning to be sure, you know, you're sending off the right messages. Make sure to respond to any specific patient questions and get the entire team educated on the app and the messages so that you can all be consistent and everyone can feel comfortable with the process. And the article mentioned another use for the messaging platforms um, during the pandemic, patients could send pictures of a negative COVID test, yeah. which is something, you know, we had kind of always wondered if you're asking the patient how, you know, what the result was, this would have been a, a way to find out. And there was an article in Becker's ASC review from July 20th about virtual reality headsets being used at Sutter Ambulatory Care Center and Surgery Center to help kids relax before surgery. They got to choose an avatar that guided them through some calming exercises, sort of a meditative thing. And since they're wearing the headsets, they don't have to see all that kind of scary equipment when they go into the room. So there's a lot of different ways that as much as technology can be confusing for some of us um, experienced people, I I won't say older, but, you know, there there are a lot of benefits, I think, and, and a lot of exciting innovations coming up. And that's a good topic. We're, we're going to talk uh, in our uh, second segment about uh, the use of technology to to save uh, time. Uh, but before we get to that, though, I just want to have a couple of reminders coming out of some recent survey experiences. Make sure that your BLS, ACLS, and PALS training has been completed through a course that includes hands-on training. It cannot be completely online. We're seeing a real mm-hmm. uptick in the number of people that are trying to get uh, their ACLS PALS or even their BLS training using these online services. Many of them are pretty sketchy, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the requirement from a CMS standpoint as well as uh, from the accreditation organizations that they have to include a hands-on component. Yeah, uh, some of it can be done online, mm-hmm. uh, but there has to be a hands-on com- uh, component yeah. so that you can do that, uh, you know, the chest compressions and things mm-hmm. like that. And which, somebody can tell you if you're not doing it quite correctly. I right. mean, it just even if you've done it, you know, 20 times had the training, you know, you have to keep up on it because it's, right. it's hopefully not happening very often in real life. So you have to practice. We do want to remind everyone, too, about the infection uh, control nurses, the infection control coordinators in your centers, making sure that they have documented training specifically about managing a uh, infection control program in an ASC. Um, of course, this is self-serving because we do have our Infection Control 101 and 201 mm-hmm. course, which uh, does prepare your infection control coordinators for that role, as well as uh, the two of them together help somebody uh, who might be interested in the CAPE exam, which is the uh, Certified Ambulatory Infection Preventionist Program, uh, which uh, you know is a good certification program for people that are looking for uh, uh, specifically uh, ambulatory surgery center oversight. We do want to mention that there are some states specifically right now, I can think of New Jersey, that does require you to actually have a CIC 
uh, certified individual work uh, with you in that organization. But again, you have to have documented training for your infection control coordinator to make sure that they have that in their record. And also, we it came to our attention that the Medicare ombudsman reference in the interpretive guidelines uh, is no longer active. So if you were to follow that link in the interpretive guidelines, uh, you're going to get a dead page and it doesn't even reference you to another page. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes for the new one. It, It ends with ombudsman dash home. So if you're not, if your link on your uh, patient rights and responsibilities or whatever document you use, uh, whatever sign you use for complaints. If it does not end with ombudsman-home, uh, it is an outdated link. So you definitely want to uh, uh, catch this link. You know, Sue, it does point out something that's kind of important. Conditions for coverage require you to reference the Medicare ombudsman. It's only in the interpretive guidelines that they actually have that specific link. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to remember, and we don't always talk about this, that the conditions for coverage are authoritative. The interpretive guidelines are uh, recommendations, uh, which is why uh, you still will get cited even if you follow the link in the interpretive guidelines. Uh, so be very careful about that and uh, just make sure that your link is current. So we know that uh, staffing continues to be a major issue, and there's a lot of turnover in the past few years, and the business office is no exception. Uh, the need for experienced coders, billers, and accounts receivable managers is as challenging as it uh, has ever been. And you need you know these experienced individuals to assure accurate and timely collection of, of the amounts that you're, you're owed. And issues with these three areas, uh, staffing issues with these three areas, will affect your cash flow. Even if somebody is out for a week, you know, a week's delay in in uh, coding or billing uh, can result in significant cash flow problems. Uh, in some of our weekly drop-in sessions and with our uh, patrons and, and premium access members, we talked about the challenges uh, of staffing in this area and when it was appropriate to consider outsourcing, billing, coding, and collection to a third-party service, as well as the pros and cons of doing so. So we called upon our friends over at Surgical Information Systems, a sponsor of the show, to review this area. And after our break, we will uh, interview Jessica Nelson from SIS about this topic. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With revenue cycle services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. SIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, SIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, Provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the SIS RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from SIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission. 
shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit sysfirst.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at SIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's sysfirst.com to learn more about SIS revenue cycle services. So for our focus segment uh, this week, we thought we would focus on uh, outsource billing. It's become a very important issue lately uh, with many uh, centers, especially with you know staffing challenges that we have, the, uh, the staff turnover that has been occurring recently. So I called upon my friends at uh, Surgical Information Systems, SIS, to to uh, put me in touch with somebody that knows this topic very well. And she uh, they sent uh, Jessica Nelson. So welcome, Jessica, to our show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I thought we would start by just talking about, you know, where we are right now in the ASC industry, just kind of a discussion. I mean, I don't even know if you know this, uh, but, you know, how many centers ASCs actually do outsource billing if we have that type of information or or certainly where you are? You know, Jessica works with SIS, and I'll ask you to introduce uh, your uh, uh, what you do and, and what SIS does in this area uh, to start. Sure. So... Yeah, I, I, I don't have any statistics around, um, you know, how many surgery centers out there are doing some sort of, some sort of outsourced billing uh, relationship or partnership. But um, out of the surgery centers that we provide billing to that use our product line, um, we've got about 75 yeah. facilities nationwide. So, and, and obviously that has been growing over the past couple of years um, with the challenges that's going on um, in our industry around staffing and and even some of the post-pandemic effects of, um, you know, payer responsiveness and delays and age they are and yeah. just that, that portion of it continuing to grow. What do you think is the biggest driver, you know, uh, people coming on board? Do you have a, a sense for what, what, what is the, the major reason for your growth right now? Staffing. Staffing, uh, yeah. Surgery centers having a hard time keeping billing staff or business office staff on board, um, mostly competing with uh, these employees that are wanting to go to like a remote type of environment or, um, you know, maybe have an opportunity in a big health system or a hospital system that they're going to. But it seems like the, the centers that are coming our way are like, we don't, our biller quit. Um, yeah. Our coder had ended up leaving uh, unexpectedly, and you know we need someone to jump in um, and, and be able to help us uh, through this time. So that would probably be the the number one um, number one reason we see facilities coming our way. Uh, another reason that I've seen recently, by the way, some of our organizations that have been going with outsourced billing has been because they're brand new. We've actually been opening centers 
Um, you know, we, we love to say we, we don't do that as a business, but for some reason, people are coming to us a lot lately for uh, new starts. And with everything else that's going on, um, it's the last thing they want to worry about is billing at that point. You know, they might eventually think they're going to take it on in house, but, uh, if they can, uh, deal with all the other things first and then just turn this over to somebody else to get things started. That's been my perception because I'm finding among our clients, the ones that are almost always starting with a billing company are, are, um, are, are those that are startups. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the challenge there for them is just like you articulated, um, you know, finding the talent or even, you know, having the resources within the surgery center to, to fully bring up a business office operation. Right. So this is kind of intuitive, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. How important is, you know, making sure that you continue to build no matter what happens uh, to the financial health of an organization? And, and what could be the potential, you know, uh, problems if you if you don't fix the problem right away? Yeah, 1,000% important uh, yeah. to the, the overall success of the facility. And, you know, when you think about the, the new facilities that are trying to, you know, get their surgery center going, build up their volume, build up their case mix, and um, oftentimes the, the billing side of it, because there's so many other priorities that they're doing, the billing side of it becomes a, a backdrop yeah. um, or something that they get to. Uh, when that resource is is available to get to it. So billing delays, uh, ultimately, you know, being a, a significant financial problem for the surgery center, if they're not doing it right from the get-go, um, and then lack of follow-up to just being a, another area, not having someone that's consistently there uh, yeah. to be able to uh, follow up on their claims. Yeah, and that's a good thing. I, I do a lot of speaking about what to do when a, a an accounts receivable crisis occurs, or I uh, actually I do a lot of speaking about what is a a, a, a billing crisis. I, I again, kind of intuitive to people like uh, you and me, but why don't we talk about that for a second? Now, now that I'm thinking about it, is uh, you know. Uh, let, let's say that you're an established surgery center that's doing a lot of uh, uh, cases and, and you, you, you have full staff, uh, but you, uh, it might be time to look getting some additional help or looking to see whether what you're getting is what you need in your organization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no problem. I mean, as long as you've got your pulse on, you know, what, what, the numbers are telling you month over month. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a business office manager or uh, an administrator of a facility could see very quickly that there is something going on that needs some attention. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, we'll, we'll get introduced to a facility that's been doing it in-house and um, they, they haven't been looking at their numbers month over month. And then all of a sudden it's six months down the road and they're like, What's going on? Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, what is it that went wrong here? Is it, is it the consistency? Is it, um, the quality of the work being done? And, and really that, that opening up an opportunity to have a conversation around if outsourced billing is right for you at right. that point or, um, you know, do you, do you need to, to reach out into the industry to see if there's any, you know, training opportunities or, or educational opportunities to bring in, bring into your operation? 
Uh, so I, I, I kind of I'm, I'm actually winging it here because it, it, another thought came to mind is mm-hmm. that uh, that's a very good point. Is you know what should you do uh, before you get to the point of deciding it's time to to uh, to outsource? Is uh, what other resource? Of course, you work for SIS. Um, you know, you're you're often the first people to know, or at least to to help an organization, because there's certainly a lot of tools that are built in to your software as well as any of the other software out that's out there. What types of things? So, first of all, what types of reports should they be pulling and looking at to identify a problem? And then, uh, when should they reach out to their software vendor to make sure that their staff is educated before they even go that extra step? Uh, as soon as possible would be my answer there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just kind of asking obvious questions, but it's yeah. an important point to make here. Yeah, sure. So um, many of the software systems out there do have reports that, you know, help tell that picture or tell yeah. that story of how how the overall revenue cycle management is, is processing. A, a couple I would point you to is... Um, any report that tells you the average days that it's taking to get a bill out the door. Um, If if you see your number getting over and above the three, four, five mark, um, then, you know, taking the media action there to, to understand, is this a training problem that I need to reach out to my software vendor on? Or is this um, something that I need to pull in, you know, some experts uh, that right. you may already know the software system, may already know uh, our our industry and, you know, what it takes to get those bills out the door quicker. Yeah, and, and just a parenthetical note on my side, what, what I find often um, is that uh, many times surgery centers try to train their staff when a new person comes on board to use the billing system, uh, you know, whatever modules you have there instead of reaching out to the software vendor, um, especially if they have to pay for any additional tra- training, depending upon your, your, your vendor contract. And, um, yeah. and, and I never advise that because it's like, it's like that, uh, that old thing about copying a copy. You know, at a certain point, you're going to lose that fidelity there. Same thing with training is if, if, if one person is learning off another person who learned off another person, you're removed from the source there. Uh, so one thing to do is spend the money, you know, to, uh, to every time you bring on a new biller or, or a coder to, uh, to give them the training right from the source there. So then you make a decision to move forward with outsourced billing. Now, um, there's two ways it can go. It can be very uh, uh, careful change. You know, you identify that, okay, it's time to shut down my billing department. And why don't we start with that one? So you identify a problem. You say, listen, you know, I'm just not able to hire, you know, great people right now. You might have a couple months to transition away from that. If you have the luxury of time, um, how would you suggest moving forward and deciding uh, who to uh, outsource to, you know, and and some of the pitfalls out there? Because, of course, everybody and their brother is is doing outsource billing. I, I get phone calls all the time from people I cannot understand because they English is not their primary language. What, so that's that's a pitfall. But, you know, what, yeah. what are some of the things you should be watching out for? Sure. So, yeah, assuming you've already kind of weighed the cost component of it, um, definitely do your research on the organization. Are they specialized in the types of services that you're providing? You know, do they have knowledge and experience around 
filling a sign procedure yeah. uh, to a commercial carrier out there, or if you've got certain types of payers like a work comp or no fault mix, you know, what, what are, what is their experience in that? And you may not be able to find that on a website right. or, you know, through a Google search, but, you know, reaching out to, to those companies to have those conversations and asking those questions. What all does their services include? Um, is it, is it revenue cycle management without insurance verification? Is it uh, just doing coding? Do they yeah. offer some type of a la carte services to ultimately look uh, to, to fill the gap or look for the solution that you're looking for? Um, and references, I think, is yeah. a big part of the decision-making process there as well. You know, what are some other surgery centers that they work with that may be similar to yours that um, can can offer some insight or uh, some information into how the relationship or the partnership is going to look for your surgery center? Um, and then, of course, everybody wants to know, like, what can this billing vendor do for me from a performance or a financial perspective. So, you know, asking some of those questions around uh, the performance and the operational gains uh, that that you may be able to get from an outsourced partnership like that. What I'm finding is that there's a lot of organizations out there that are that are recognizing ambulatory surgery as a growing industry and they say oh we can do that because you know we do anesthesia billing or we can do that because we do you know orthopedic uh, practice billing what do you think of that i mean how important do you think it is to have an outsourced billing organization that knows about ambulatory surgery centers specifically really really a good point there because you know part of that due diligence or that vetting process uh, as you're looking for your partner, if that's the route that you're going to go is, uh, is this a specialized part of uh, their service offering or do they just say that they're going to do it all? (laughs) They do it. They do the trophy billing and the anesthesia billing and the, in the ambulatory surgery center billing. Uh, Oftentimes even facilities that come to us that, have been with a, a billing service vendor out there like that, you know, that because there's so much to each little part of the industry that is, is very, that ASC industry is very specific. We find that there's, you know, maybe implant um, specifics that are not considered when you bill a professional side of a surgery versus billing the ASC side of the surgery. So, um, I, I think that's important uh, in the vetting process of knowing whether they're specialized in ambulatory surgery center. I, I would be very careful about going with an organization that has very limited experience with uh, ASC-specific billing because uh, I've never really seen that work out very well. And certainly, this is another thing I'm very passionate about. You do not want to be the beta tester for uh, an organization that says, yeah, I can do all these other things. You'll be my first client, but you know, we'll work it out together. Don't bother because a mistake, well, okay, talk about the consequences of making that wrong decision. And it's even important for us to, right, yeah. you know, being being specialized in ambulatory surgery center billing, you know, we, we also have to look for other technology yeah. um, opportunities out there for us. And, 
we will run into some of those same conversations of, okay, you, you offer this, but how many ambulatory surgery center clients do you have? And they're like, you'll be our first one, but we'll do everything for you. Yeah, that's right. So I agree wholeheartedly with that, yeah. Well, and, and that brings up another subject, and that is uh, many of those other organizations out there might not be billing system agnostic. Mm-hmm. And most of the, the, the reputable billing systems, now, of course, your, your organization both owns, a, a, you know, the, the billing company or a revenue source, a revenue cycle company, as well as the actual software itself. But you're revenue cycle neutral, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and how important is that? I mean, do you, I, I, my point being is you don't want to be in a position where you have to change to another software system because the billing company insists that you do that. That really does break that transparency for the surgery center and the business yeah. office and the administrator. If there's a whole separate system that your billing vendor is doing everything out of. So yeah, when you're, Talking to a billing vendor out there, definitely asking if that that is something that's a requirement of theirs, that you use their billing system uh, versus the billing system that you're buying from your software vendor that has has the all of the same functionality and and modules and workflows built into it. That's right. Um, and one th- point I'd also make, and I know uh, you're very familiar with this too, is that be, when you're choosing that vendor, make sure that they're aware of any state requirements. The best example I give is my home state here of New York. You know, uh, the billing company is also going to have to be able to provide what we call Sparkstat. In other words, regular reports to the state in electronic format. And if you do not look into that when you're doing the outsourced billing, you're going to run into problems quickly. I know there's other states that have that type of requirements too. Yes, the great state of New York yes. and the great state of California. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and also any other spe- state specific issues. Uh, I know, you know, workers' compensation, Medicaid programs can vary dramatically, and you need to have somebody again that has experience in being able to bill. In that case, not so much the billing as the follow up, uh, you know, with the Medicaid and workers' comp, because there's a lot of uh, follow up on those. Yeah. Getting to know who to reach out to. We we just had a a, a situation with uh, Medicaid, similar to like a work comp yeah. uh, situation because they're so state specific. Uh, you know, dental dental billing in an ASC is pretty standard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in one a state, for example, Idaho that we're working with, they want us to bill a whole different code and then all of the decodes. That isn't a standard CPT code. So right. yeah, just knowing those those intricacies based on the state um, it is definitely important as well. So let's talk about the other way that you often have to decide to uh, move toward an op- a billing company. It's kind of what we referred to earlier. You're in a crisis. Um, you've lost your coder. You've lost your biller. You've lost both your coders and your billers, which is, sometimes happens. Uh, and you're just, because of uh, what's going on in the uh, the marketplace right now, that personnel for personnel, you, you can't find somebody. How important is it to act on it quickly, which we know the answer to that. And second is how quickly can you make that change and how quickly should you be prepared to make that change? Most onboarding or implementation of uh, a, a client, just as an example for us, is 30 to 45 days. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, including enrollments with payers and clearinghouse setup and all of the, the payer portal access and yeah. the software access. 
Uh, but it, it, depending on where you're at with your surgery center and what clearinghouse you use, it can be on the lower end or the, the longer end of that um, in the 45-day mark. And of course, depending upon how well your system is set up, if if one of your reasons for losing your staff or having a billing and collection and coding problem is because the system is set up poorly, uh, that could definitely make things a lot tougher. And of course, if you have to convert, I, we're finding situations now where people have, especially new centers, have been sold this software program. Or have adopted a software program that their practice uses and try to convert it over to an ASC and then realize after spending sometimes over, you know, six figures uh, to implement that system that they're, uh, they can't bill or they can't bill timely. Um, so you need to be prepared for that, too, is that uh, even though you, you want to get an organization that is agnostic, there might be a situation where you're going to have to adopt a system that has actually been designed for ASCs to bill appropriately. Yeah, really good point. Really good point there. Well, another scenario that comes up for us too, for those existing facilities that, you know, there might not be a crisis going on because, you know, they've got good staff on board. uh, But as they're looking at scale or growth within the surgery center, they're going to be adding a new case mix or maybe bringing on additional surgeons. You know, sometimes that's just a, also that pivot or that opportunity to say, okay, do we, although we have good talent now, what is it going to take for us to get to that next level with these additional positions and more of the economy of scale that an outsourced billing vendor vendor may have and, you know, being able to, to help that surgery center move, move uh, to that next level with their, with their case mix or their volume. Uh, so that has been some some conversations that we've had recently as well as facilities are are looking at what their next next path is for billing and coding services. Now there might be circumstances where a surgery center uh, wants to continue doing in-house billing, but just can't locate somebody to. I cannot find somebody to do that that billing for them uh, right now, or, or they they find the person, they find the perfect person, uh, but they can't start for two months. Um, mm-hmm. How feasible is it to do uh, you know a short term solution? You know, maybe not for a month or two, but how feasible is it? And what types of arrangements do, do most billing companies require before they'll take you on? Yeah, I usually see it no less than a year um, as kind of that short-term solution yeah. uh, for surgery centers. And unless there is a, a a situation with a company where there's some offshoring opportunity, those kind of a la carte, I'll call them a la carte type yeah. Uh, services like maybe you just need a, a AR follow-up person or maybe you just need someone to post payments or maybe you need someone to enter charges. Um, most of your revenue cycle management vendors out there are, are looking for three, no more or no less than one year um, mm-hmm. terms. So just something to keep in mind uh, as you know, you're know you going out <coughs> and, and looking for uh, that solution to, to fill that gap that you're you're going through at that moment. Yeah, I think that's important for them to understand is that if they are looking for just having a billing company do it for a couple months, it's that's just not going to work. Yeah, yeah. 
Or, or if they do promise that they're going to do it for a couple months, you might be wary of that company and their their capabilities. What are you going to be cleaning up after? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah so it puts you in worse situation. <laughs> well, and that brings up yeah. an interesting point, which I was just thinking about, is that sometimes it's better to wait to get the right you, – you don't want to jump into a relationship simply because they can start you up next week. Uh, you want to make sure that you're you're signing on with somebody, even if it takes a little bit longer, because you might pay the price later on. Yeah, yeah, that usually means they've got resources potentially that can either jump in right away or they're they're going to try to find you someone real quick. Yeah, yeah, uh, to be able to bring you on, and and maybe that person that they're bringing on is not, you know, already knowledgeable in the systems or already knowledgeable in the industry. Or they just hired them because they needed to bring them on for your your center and you're going to have a delay yeah. there. Uh, now, many of these outsourced uh, revenue cycle organizations offer other types of services, uh, which could be beneficial to the organization. Can you talk about some of those other types of services that many of these companies yeah. offer? I see mostly uh, coding as yeah. a standalone type service, uh, doing it specifically for the surgery centers. Um Patient collections, early out opportunities for patient uh, follow-up, uh, statement generation, letter generation before it has to go to bad debt. Yeah. So you may hear that referred to as early out collections. Uh, some revenue cycle management vendors out there offer credentialing and managed care contracting as well. Because right. that's, you know, something that, that, you know, would help take your revenue cycle management to the next level. Um, and, and let's be clear about something because uh, this has been a, some confusion. When, you, when you're talking about credentialing, you're talking about payer credentialing where you're developing yeah. that relationship. There's also provider credentialing where you um, – and, and there is some crossover admittedly on this, but, but provider credentialing is what your, your surveyors like myself are looking at when they go in. But uh, 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 payer credentialing or, or uh, insurance credentialing is when you're establishing the relationship and providing proof that those, are, those people can, uh, can actually provide the services. Yeah, the physician. Those are the most common ones that uh, I see uh, with outsourcing organizations. Uh, also, insurance verification, yeah. uh, if, if that is something related to your pre-service uh, eligibility benefits and financial counseling piece of it, if that's you know something that is not already being done and not being really important in our industry right now, right? With the yeah. New Surprises Act. Actually, I want you to talk about that for a second is because I think that is one of those things that people are really struggling with, uh, especially if you're a small operation. Um, one could argue that the Surprise Billing Act, depending upon the volume of uh, out-of-network and self-pay that you might have, could could be reason enough just to give up and, and outsource. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's all newer to everybody in the industry right now, but uh, really identifying what your your processes are going to be so that you can comply um, and, and you're not having to go down the route of the complaints or the IDR processes, um, the dispute resolution processes with the payers uh, if a patient ends up, you know, sending in a complaint. And Jessica, what about contracting? There are some uh, revenue cycle organizations that are offering contracting with uh, insurance companies too. Uh, I, I don't think it's that common, but that might be something also to look into. There are opportunities out there, and and that would include 
the managed care contracting, the actual negotiation with the payers, as well as, you know, the, the data gathering and everything that's needed to know what you need to go back to the payer with. Right. Um, there, there is a component, I think, that many uh, revenue cycle management companies out there do, although it may not be contracting in a sense that uh, is help helping to provide some insight into, all right, what are other ASCs getting reimbursed yeah. for like procedures? Um, you know, more of that data analysis piece of it that uh, it is part of our normal service offering um, with, with an outsourced vendor. And then uh, lastly, once you establish a relationship and, and outsource your billing and code and or coding services to uh, another company or to an outsourced company, this is my one of my favorite topics. How important is it for you to monitor the, their work to make sure that they're uh, they're doing their job and what kinds of things should they be doing to do that monitoring? Yeah, I'm a proponent of this being a partnership with the facility um, and as a revenue cycle management leader uh, in our industry. You know, your revenue cycle management vendor should be giving you data so that you know where um, the, the surgery center, the, the overall operations and the financials are at, um, whether that's on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. If you're not getting that today, um, I, I would recommend at least asking your vendor or figuring out how to run those reports out of your software system to monitor at least monthly. Um, But I I would emphasize weekly is better so that you're not, you know, behind or you're in, you get into that crisis mode of having to, you know, take action on something um, with, with the vendor or with the billing team that you're working with. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. One of the comments that I make when I'm speaking about this topic in particular is just because you outsource your billing and your coding doesn't mean that you, uh, you you don't have to worry about, you know, double checking the work. Yeah. It's just as important as when you have an in-house coding and billing to, to you know, to look at those same, same reports. So, sorry, administrators, you can't just uh, forget about all those reports that you were looking at before. Um, and, and also, I think you'll agree with me, making sure you do regular, you know, coding and billing audits to make sure that um, for a, from a compliance standpoint uh, and also just double checking. So, you know, you don't have to be the only one that's double checking on the work of that other, other organization. But be very careful about who you hire to do that because, of course, uh, you know, hiring a competitor to uh, audit the work of uh, your organization, uh, you might want to be careful about what results might come out about uh, uh, with that. So that's why you might want to focus really on companies cool. that don't actually do it, uh, that that are only coder or only a firm that only does audits of it. Yeah, really good point. Jessica, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, John. I appreciate being on with you today and um, getting to talk about the revenue cycle management world. So. Thank you. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff, as well as other events in the ASC industry. 
So coming up this week, the Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and the South Carolina Ambulatory Surgery Association's Joint Semi-Annual Conference and Trade Show is going to be August 17th to the 18th at the Hyatt Regency in Savannah. The Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's 2023 Annual Meeting will be August 24th and 25th at the Hyatt Lodge in Oak Brook, Illinois. John will be speaking at the conference, and he's been asked to actually do a second session. Yeah, I think one of the speakers bowed out, and they asked me to do another session. I still don't know what I'm going to talk about, but I'll I'll work on that in the next yes. couple days. <laughs> and the California Ambulatory Surgery Association Conference and Exhibits are, is going to be September 13th through the 15th at the Portola Hotel and Spa at the Monterey uh, Bay Inn in Monterey, California. And so, unfortunately, we wanted to go out there this year, yeah, uh, but we there. have other conflicts. I, it, yeah. It's quite sad. We love Monterey. It's such a mm-hmm. beautiful area. And California is such a great um, conference. But yeah. The, the, it's high, we'll uh, really, uh, if you can make it uh, out there, they, they do mm-hmm. a fantastic job. Yeah. And the Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers Annual Education Conference and Exhibition is September 19th and 20th at the Hilton Polaris in Columbus, Ohio, and we will have a special episode, including interviews with some of the speakers. Yep, and we're, I don't think you're going to be coming with me, Sue, uh, so I don't know who my co-host no. uh, is going to be while I'm out there, but uh, unfortunately, we've had some uh, scheduling conflicts with that. And the Idaho Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference is going to be September 21st and 22nd at the Hilton Garden Inn in Boise, downtown. And the New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers 2023 Annual conference will be held October 4th to the 6th, 2023 at the Desmond Hotel in Albany, New York. John will be speaking and moderating some sessions, and we'll have a special episode with interviews. And we're also going to have our uh, annual New York State uh, client conference mm-hmm. there in the morning of the f- of the 4th, as well as three training programs. So it's a real, if you are uh, from New York, uh, there's going to be a lot going on at that conference. Mm-hmm. And of course, because we're based in New York, we uh, we tend to have a, a very large presence there. And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 9th and 10th, 2023 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. I'll be speaking there again, and hopefully we'll do another special episode there with interviews. And don't forget about all of our boot camps, which we talked about earlier, and there'll be uh, links in our show notes. And we also have a lot of other uh, recorded events. They're all available on ASCpodcast.com. Don't forget about our uh, existing credentialing conference, uh, the Fall 2022 Finance and Accounting Conference, the Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference, and all of our on-demand Director of Nursing and Administrator Boot Camps, as well as the Multi-State Conference, which is a good day to, a good way to pick up uh, 16 credit hours if you're uh, if you're looking for AEUs. And we want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast, also known as ASC Central. It's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for business administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include access to some of our virtual conferences, links to various resources, policies and procedures, forms, drills, discounts on services and books, and access to AEU credits. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including research, staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And for more information, please visit us at ASCpodcast.com. And thank you for tuning into this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. 
We hope you found this discussion to be informative and engaging. If you did, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'd like to give a special shout out to our amazing team who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, myself, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kelleritis, Amy Cronkite, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Fodi, Donna Macchio, Ann Geyer, and Christina Norman. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. We look forward to bringing you more exciting discussions and insights in future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.